Hello, and welcome to CAA Conversations. I'm here today with Elizabeth Moran and Erica Molesworth, and we're going to be discussing teaching darkroom to digital natives and how the field has shifted in the past 10 to 20 years. But before we get started, a little bit about each of these individuals. Elizabeth is an artist and lecturer in the Art, Media, and Technology program at Parsons School of Design. Her work investigates how varying belief systems that inform our understanding of recorded evidence. Erica Molesworth is an artist and lecturer in photography at California College of the Arts and San Francisco Art Institute. She is interested in the expanded field of photography and its intersection with moving images and digital media. So without further ado, I'm going to hand the conversation over to these two. Hi. Hello. <laughs> Thanks for having us. Um, I think uh, what we had first thought of um, when thinking about kind of challenges or interesting aspects of teaching photography today, the first thing that came up was this idea um, of teaching analog photography, which is still, you know, an introduction to black and white darkroom is still kind of uh, most college level photography students introduction course uh, and kind of our observations and um, thoughts on, on teaching that to uh, kids who are coming with quite a lot of experience of photography as a digital and social media uh, medium rather than a fine art medium. Yeah, and, and also something that um, Erica and I have have both experienced, I think, um, in that we're both on the younger side of, of teaching. Um, we've both been doing it for under five years. Um, so we sort of came of age in the, the last uh, era of black and white darkroom being our first exposure to photography when we were students and um, sort of growing up with the technology becoming what it is today, um, where it's, as Erica just said, now the, the, the introduction to photography. So it sort of has flipped that by the time we were um, finishing college or in grad school, then that's when everything had shifted. So our thinking about our experience of, of learning um, is, is sort of, we are that sort of transition uh, generation where we're able to speak both languages, where we're able to, we're bilingual in that way, we're able to think about what it means to be learning darkroom and analog first, but then also I, I have found that we in a lot of ways have an advantage of um, that when we first accessed Photoshop, for example, there was really only a handful of tools. It's not, it wasn't as robust and endless as it is today. So we were able to sort of like grow with Photoshop and then what that means to then teach it to students who are coming at it and it's now this robust beast. Um, so how do we introduce this beast that we first had access to when it was just this tiny little program? Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. And, and one of the things that, you know, we kind of constantly think about is uh, certainly at um, all the institutions we've taught at, black and white darkroom is the first um, kind of course in a photography curriculum. And I think Liz especially was thinking about, is that still, you know, kind of the absolute best structure to have? in terms of the curriculum, um, considering the way in which photography has moved into this really expanded digital field that could encompass everything from 3D printing to augmented reality, 
Um, and also, if it is still a really good um, introduction, which I think there is an argument for, how do you speak to, uh, how do you, what then becomes the fundamentals of photography? Are the fundamentals of photography still shutter speed, aperture, uh, the recording of light? Um, and then if that's um, still accepted as the basis, then um, how do you move into maybe further down the road, allowing students to have this what they need, which is a really thorough understanding of software and technologies and a willingness to learn um, possibly new technologies every year as they go along. Yeah, something I've been thinking a lot about, um, especially recently, is um, how Erica referenced, uh, you know, shutter aperture, um, ISO, which was the, you know, what we refer to as film speed, so how sensitive film is. And, you know, we always think of those those three as kind of the three fundamental strategies for recording light, right? Shutter speed is how fast the, how much a light is exposed by a duration of time. Aperture is how wide is that opening, and then the ISO is the sensitivity to light. But, and those things are still true for digital, but it's shifted in that now that ISO is, is kind of arbitrary. It's, it's referencing this old technology, but it's not, it's not grains on film anymore that were chemically made to be more or less sensitive to light. We now have a chip, and a chip is a chip is a chip. Um, you know, it's proprietary, of course, depending on who manufactured this chip, but that chip is what's in your camera, and that's that. So then dialing in that sensitivity is now um, not a physical thing at all. It's a, it's a, it's a coded thing. Um, it's programmed. So then we, I'm thinking about what are these like new fundamentals now when it comes to teaching digital as a foundation as opposed to film and analog as a foundation. And so I think about histograms, which really is just a bar graph, but it's the, the most foundational understanding of, of the data of the light that makes up, the light that was captured that then makes up the pixels that make up our, our image. And so to start thinking about, okay, the, the fundamentals are no longer these three things, shutter, aperture, and ISO, but it's more shutter, aperture, and then histograms, and how that's already sort of a hybrid idea of thinking about capturing our images and then how we begin to assess our image, which is no longer base density in the dark room of checking if the, you know, if we're able to uh, match the density of the film itself, whether or not it's been exposed to light, but actually this, this new measurement tool that's graphs. Um, so how do we teach that? How do we make that exciting? You know, it's not magical like being in the dark room. <laughs> right. Yeah, and I think uh, one thing that obviously you find yourself doing teaching analog um, to uh, you know digital kids is finding these um, kind of uh, trying to find these comparisons. So you start to be working backwards. So uh, explaining things, um, explaining the ISO setting on a digital SL, um, you know, on a uh, sorry, ISO setting on a you know mechanical film camera in reference to kind of the ISO settings on a digital camera, whereas of course the digital one is 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 as Liz said a kind of uh, just an ersatz 
kind of made up version of, of the film. And then in the dark room, kind of explaining um, burning and dodging, which is lightening and dark, lightening and darking a print in reference to tools in Photoshop. So you're sort of explaining um, the how something analog works in relationship to like a future technology that's based on the analog in the first place. I think it's a really interesting experience too work in a um, medium or an art form that has really gone from being almost entirely mechanical, physical, bodily uh, form to something that, as I was saying, is almost entirely, particularly in sort of commercial realms, become, because of cost, become a, almost entirely a digital uh, medium. And then once something becomes, um, you know, as uh, Liz was talking about, something becomes data, something becomes code, something becomes, um, you know, these digital forms, it then seems to make the boundaries between mediums to me much more porous because uh, you start to uh, see uh, parallels between things that happen in photography that also happen in, uh, for example, 3D printing um, and 3D scanning, which are Similarly, these kind of digital-based recordings of and then reproductions of, of real life, so to speak. And um, also, uh, you know, when there's sort of – I become really interested in um, usually outside the dominant schools, they have courses like Code for Photographers or uh, kind of, uh, you know, data uh, sort of understanding data for photographers. So it's clear that – a lot of people are starting to think about this uh, way in which photography is really uh, – what it means as a medium is becoming much more uh, porous and expanded. But also I think important to say that photography has always been that this kind of strange medium that falls in between and uh, no one really knows where it is. So I don't think it's a, a bad thing, um, but I do think that – it's always been important in photography to kind of teach students and make students aware of the specificity or the non-specificity of it as a medium and sort of really hammer home this idea of remaining flexible because it's a huge medium. You know, it encompasses so much, even in its really traditional forms. You can be a fashion, commercial, food, uh, editorial or fine art or, you know, it's kind of a, a really interesting and porous medium in that way generally. Yeah, like at Parsons, the photography department has is in the um, is in the media program, um, the art media and technology program. So um, it's interesting and it's been there forever as far as I know. Um, and so it's considered media separate from the art department where painting sculpture and what have you are. And of course, you know, I, photography has always struggled, as Erica said, with its placement kind of in the world. Um, photographers fought forever to be considered artists, but then now in this kind of digital field where everything's kind of becoming everything else at the same time, then maybe photography is sort of happy again to be considered media. Um, you know, and so it, it, obviously it depends on who you ask and how their own definition of what photography is. And I think that does come down to each individual who uses the medium. Um, but at, at NYU, for example, they, they have, they call a printing lab and it's literally every other station is either a 2d printer or a 3d printer. Mm -hmm. And when I saw that, that I, I really, it blew my mind. Just, I hadn't considered a printing lab being anything other 
then maybe screen printing and photography, maybe, but I never consider 2D to be next to 3D. And then wondering, is that the future? And, and then of course, as a teacher, I felt this pang to my stomach of, oh goodness, does this mean I now need to learn all these programs and all these tools so that I'm capable of teaching all forms of printing that could potentially maybe fall into the realm of the record and, um, you know, be it photography as a record, but now sculpture as a record. Um, and so there is this sort of boundless field, but then, and then ourselves as teachers navigating, where do we, where do we draw our own boundaries in terms of our, our own practices and then what we teach, but then also, I, I do think it's so important to let students know that, I mean, we'll have students that come into the program who, you know, have had you know, iPhones their whole lives. Um, they consider themselves accomplished photographers, but then sort of blowing that up and asking them like, well, what is photography? And, you know, do you want to be a journalist? Do you want to be all those things that Erica said? Or are you actually interested in the record? Are you actually interested in collecting data and then showing it in some other way? and then really blowing up what it means to to be, I was gonna say image maker, but it's not even necessarily images, but a reproducer of some sort. Mm. Yeah, and a key thing that I think uh, is possibly true across the board, but that is really important is uh, Liz is talking about what are our responsibilities to learn new th skills, and I think that's always been the case. You think about the previous generation of teachers who would have had to go from teaching entirely analog to learning something completely different as well. Um, and I think there is a responsibility there. And then in terms of concrete sort of teaching strategies, um, we uh, well, we both sort of like to um, give assignments and in-class activities and things like that that really um, make it um, sort of not just learning technologies, which is obviously really important. We could have another topic all about how you teach uh, those technologies, but in terms of giving students the skills and the confidence to actually learn how to learn new technologies. Um, and that sort of, I think, comes around in, in various different ways, but it really is being, I think, super, part of it is being um, structuring assignments such that students have to, to some extent, find their own way through. There's a limited degree to which you can um, you can demonstrate Photoshop till the cows come home, but they're kind of hands-on, um, you know, kind of masking or layering or something really has to be sort of worked out through the assignment and the student's time as well. Um, but also making it super clear to students that, and being honest, um, that their learning of these technologies in no way um, is going to be complete after they finish it, certainly an undergraduate degree course, and that they are going to come across new technologies that they will need to teach themselves, uh, and teaching some, kind of some research skills and some um, resources that students can access online and elsewhere uh, to, to be able to be confident every time they come up against a new technology, which is going to happen more and more. So that idea of flexibility, both us as teachers, but also in the students themselves, is really important. Yeah, for sure. And even, you know, thinking about um, the tools now, we, 20 years ago, you could inherit your grandmother or grandfather's Leica and it would still be a perfect camera to use. Um, and it would still, I mean, as long as they took good care of it, you know, and the lens was good, it would still be perfectly functioning. You would still be able to be a quote photographer with this piece of equipment that will, you know, 
never let you down. But now, the, and not just the students, but schools are constantly having to refresh their equipment, um, and not just cameras, but the various scanners and the machines. I mean, Apple just announced their new uh, you know, computer that's however many thousands of dollars that'll be able to process like petabytes of whatever imaging I just was scanning the specs and was, you know. Um, but so none of that is really accessible to students right out of school, most students. Um, and then in five years, they'll be antiquated. So I think it's also, yeah, to speak to that flexibility, but also how, you know, how do we get students to not just be savvy about teaching themselves technology and being able to stay up to date in terms of the software, but also this access of how do you maintain a practice outside of school when you're outside these beautiful dark rooms, be them digital or analog. And, you, you know, what does it mean to be shooting with cameras now that are considered dated in five years? Um, what does that mean? Does that mean we start pooling our resources and sharing spaces like artists have done with studios forever? I mean, that's one option. Another option is just to stay in school forever. Um, <laughs> you know, but, it, but, it's, it, but to have those sort of real life conversations with them of we wanted, you know, we want our students to leave school with, um, you know, the broadest vocabulary possible in terms of the language that we're teaching them to speak. But then what happens when they leave and they don't have access to, to these tools? Um, and, but how do they keep making and how do they keep thinking in that broader way? Absolutely, I think that's um, so important and, and not to, um, and I really don't wanna shy away from some of the real economic issues that face our students a lot. Had students who you know can't complete a course because of not being able to afford certain required you know kind of photographic equipment, um, and that becomes really important. I think part of that is professional development, as usual. You know, obviously preparing really well to apply for grants and other resources that are, um, and you know, kind of who to work for, uh, making connections to assist with that. But then I think this is an, and sort of to, um, in a way, bring all this back to a foundation is um, teaching students the the similar, the things that don't change. Um, so this idea of kind of really what, really looking at and really considering what an image is. And in the context of that, how do you, there's artists, and this is possibly more in an art school context, um, rather than a commercial photography context, but artists have always been able to, I think, work around these constraints and create um, images, you know, uh, perhaps today the equivalent is iPhones, but, you know, pinhole, handmade kind of cameras, uh, expired paper, all these kind of strategies that artists have, have kind of been using. And I think it's really interesting to see a, a growing body of artists who are returning to the physical uh, perhaps as a response to this sort of, you know, the rat race of the of the digital, and um, how to and to make sure students learn um, from a vast array of of uh, artistic examples that show that you don't necessarily need to spend three thousand or more minimum um, on the latest camera every three years in order to be a good photographer. Uh, and what are the ways around doing that in the digital age? Um, and I think. Uh, you know, we've sort of, when we bring them in, we sort of say the iPhone photograph isn't everything, but perhaps by the end of four years, it's become this complex understanding of perhaps in some situations, the iPhone 
is a perfectly relevant um, kind of medium depending on the conceptual uh, context of, of what they're doing. And I think part of that, you know, and there's always these kind of fundamental teaching strategies of kind of really making kids look at images in a way that isn't really facilitated by the constant of social media, making sure they have uh, this kind of time with images and forcing them even to, in a class activity, look at an image for 20 minutes and talk about it for 20 minutes. And they find it really hard, I think, in many cases, because the pace at which they're seeing, taking, sending, receiving images is usually much faster than that. So even in the context of this high-tech technology, I think you can come back to those sort of basic teaching strategies as well. Yeah, I think, I think thinking about um context and, and what you were saying, Erica, with, um, with you know, choosing your, your medium within the field of the expanded field of photography to be a conceptual choice, you know, like you can, you can make very, very valid work with an iPhone if it supports the concept. But even pushing the students not to just to look at image long, images longer, which for sure is something that it, I think is so important. I think visual literacy, especially in now where images are replacing language in a lot of ways with texting and GIFs and um, Snapchat, um, but thinking about the context of was it, what does it mean to have images in the context of a conversation with a friend and what does it mean to have those images then decontextualized and placed someplace else or vice versa. And so I think thinking about how images function while not a new conversation, I think it becomes an even more important conversation because students are coming into programs having been image makers basically since they first got, you know, held a camera or a phone, I mean, which could be as early as four. I mean, people love posting their kids' first photos when they hand them their phone, right? Um, so, but then thinking about, okay, you've been making images for, you know, you're 18 and you've probably been making images for already at least a decade, but how do they function? How do these images function now? Um, and then what does it mean to, to make them in this using this different camera or, the, or back in the dark room or photograms or splashing chemicals on paper and how, how do all these things function and then what happens if they then collapse back onto themselves. I mean so often students when they develop film for the first time they go to their phone and they turn on the, the negative uh, filter in their camera on their phone and then they review their film using their phone. And of course this makes sense, but the first time I saw a student do it, I just thought to myself, I never would have thought to do that because in, I, because in my mind, they were just two separate things, but it, it's, it comes natural to them to think that way. And so I think encouraging that is good. And then as soon as they develop their photographs and it has this nostalgic aesthetic, it's black and white, it's a little fuzzy, you know, all these wonderful things that come with the darkroom, they then photograph it and put it on Instagram. Um, and so, you know, how, so that image already is functioning in two very different ways and it's only been in existence for, you know, maybe a minute. Um, so I think getting them to think about that, what does it mean that you wanted to share this image um, on Instagram and how is that changing the function of the image you created? Yeah, super important. I think um, more than, you know, perhaps any other time, uh, almost have to be photographers and kind of media scholars as well, uh, because photography inserts itself across so many different contexts. So as well as thinking about kind of, uh, 
you know, the photography itself and, and its aesthetic form, um, there's this whole other thing of, I think, thinking about what is Instagram itself? Who runs it? What are its parameters? Who makes it and why? Uh, how does advertising fit into that? Why do they want you to post things on there? What kind of form does it assist? Uh, and then you could say that equally with uh, every other kind of image sharing software, Giphy, Snapchat, on and on Facebook, on and on, on. And then even um, I think making them aware that then the so-called professional side of photography is, is also not, doesn't have transparent platforms, that Photoshop also has its own set of parameters that are made by a, a certain company at a certain time in a certain place and how that uh, might influence the way they make images as well. And I think all of that kind of serves as a, if you can sort of teach some of that at least, it serves as a foundation of thinking intelligently about where and why they're going to make and place uh, their own images as well. Yeah, like a criticality, like the need for visual literacy in terms of understanding how they're ingesting and digesting these images. I mean, thousands of images that they're probably seeing every day, but then also, yeah, a critical understanding of how are these images coming to them, the sort of learned aesthetic, how Instagram, when it first came out, had all these filters that were all very nostalgic. But then once we all sort of learned that aesthetic, they sort of went, you know, put those by the wayside but there is you know we all know what a quote good instagram looks like um and so thinking about what is this learned understanding of both what is being said through the image but also the look of the image and how we define what is quote good and what is quote bad what gets likes and hearts and things and what doesn't um even snapchat i recently learned um you know you get you have like a grade you have a you have a like a number associated with you for how much how many responses you get um, based on your on your images and so that that I, I that I still haven't fully wrapped my mind around um, but you know yeah a critical understanding of how these things are are working and not saying that they can't participate in it but what does it mean to participate in that and what does it mean to to have your images be something I think about a lot is especially given our current political climate, what does it mean to have your images taken out of context and put back in new context? And and what does it mean to, to document today? Um, you know, how what is our function as image makers out in the world? If we see something happening, do we take out our phone to make a phone call or to take a picture? Um, you know, and then how does that how does that all work in terms of being um, good citizens and image makers simultaneously? Not to be dramatic, but yeah, that, that sort of critical understanding of the power of the image, again, which is not a new conversation, but it's it's an expanded conversation. I'm going to interject and ask, you've mm. covered such a range of really interesting <laughs> topics here. Are there any ways, um, whether it be through assignments or various ways that you conduct class, etc., that you foreground any of these ideas for the students? The, like the technology one, for example, of teaching, not teaching them, but teaching them how to teach themselves. Sure, yeah. Yeah, that's an assignment I always give um, in my advanced digital classes, is I, I, I make it a very broad assignment. Um, it's usually something along the lines of you need to make a composite image. And I'll show students a range of, you know, Annie Leibovitz and other commercial photographers whose aim is to make images look as realistic as possible, but are 
completely fabricated in post-production. Um, or I'll show them artists like Kate Destiu or others that are very much acknowledging the technology um, and it's about the seams, it's about it not being believable or not even looking realistic at all and abstracted. And I have them come up with proposals and examples of, of what they're thinking of doing. And, you know, it, it, without fail, everyone will have something they don't know how to do. And then I say, that's now your assignment is learn how to do that. Um, make the make what you want to do based on your proposal, but part of this assignment is for you to go out and then teach us how you did it. So then they end up being teachers too, where they say, I watched all these videos on YouTube and lynda.com and all these things, or I called um, a professional retoucher and he gave me advice or she gave me advice, um, and then they have to come back and report um, all the research they did to then be able to make the image that they wanted. That's great. How about you, Erica? Yeah, I think um, a couple of things. Firstly, I also I think I sort of touched on, but I want to reiterate how sort of some fundamentals of art education can become, you know, really really important in this context. In terms of, uh, for example, facilitating a critique in such a way that um, I'm giving questions to students to think about as they're, uh, you know, on, on theme days or whatever as they're thinking about the images that they're making in, in some of these different media contexts uh, and in terms of some of these different forms across platforms that we talked about. And then also just um, taking the time to um, look at the images of a wide range of kind of people and facilitating discussions about what does it mean that this photographer is, you know, primarily shows in galleries, or this photographer primarily uh, works with magazine editorial work, and how kind of that shapes the the form of the way in which those photographers uh, kind of make their own work. In terms of a specific example, I think looking at the way in which kind of photographers maybe potentially fairly traditional in some ways photographers or at least associated in that way like Susan Mizellis or some uh, Magnum photographers in the way looking at their Instagrams and looking at or looking at some of their projects that have incorporated Instagram and I like to kind of look at that and sort of see how students respond to maybe how their work is presented in a gallery setting versus you know how it's kind of comes across in, in something like Instagram which is also a professional development thing as as platforms like Instagram become really important for career building and that kind of thing as well I think maybe one thing we haven't quite said just very I mean I think it's in the conversation but it just hasn't been said very specifically is one thing I, I struggle with um, whenever I'm writing a, a course or, or teaching, be it analog or digital, is, is the question of breadth versus depth. Mm -hmm. And I, I think it's, it's related to like the assignment I just, I just talked about, um, where we could, you know, we could do a quick down and dirty assignment where they do 3D printing, and we could do another quick down and dirty assignment where they have to make 10 types and daguerreotypes and whatever. But, you know, when we're, where do we, and I think it, it comes down to each, probably each, each person is a, is a teacher, um, where do we draw the line of, okay, this is the, this is the balance of the breadth, but with the proper amount of depth. Um, and that goes to really kind of where we even started the conversation of, I, I'm really struggling with if it does make sense for black and white photography to be 
the still sort of de facto, and it's not true for every school, but in a lot of schools, it's still the de facto introductory course is black and white analog. Mm -hmm. And I love that for lots of reasons, but then I really question it for a lot of other reasons. Um, and so thinking about, do our students all need to know how to use a dark room? Which is a heartbreaking question for me to ask, but I sort of think the answer may be no. And encourage students to go there if they want for that breadth, but then it doesn't make sense to force everyone to do this for a whole semester, but then that breadth could, that, that depth could be then limited where they could go deeper in other technologies or other strategies of learning I'm not going to say the same things, but very similar things. Um, so that's just something I struggle with, I would say. And it, as we continue to sort of transition, I mean, uh, most schools, you know, only in the last five to 10 years have gotten rid of their color dark rooms. So we're like still in this transition period of, you know, the color dark rooms are now almost all gone. A lot of a lot of even places to get film processed is becoming rarer and rarer to find and more and more expensive. So that access thing too for students. So you know, are we forcing them to do this antiquated process that in five years it may be only a handful of cities even have the facilities to do it? I don't know. Yeah, I think that's basically my thoughts as well. Thank you both so much for having this conversation today.